to Romans chapter 12, you remember that uh, <clears throat> when we started Romans chapter 12, you know, sometimes when you start moving down through the chapters and it takes a couple of months to uh, get it all uh, laid out, you forget the original uh, context of, this, of the chapter. And you remember that uh, Romans chapter 12, the context <clears throat> started with you and me and our bodies being a living sacrifice. And he started out by talking about the fact that, uh, uh, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. And we talked a lot about, you know, the things that we give God. And uh, the only thing that God really wants is the only thing that is really going to be the testimony that uh, we need to be to this world, and that's when God gets your body. You're willing to give it to Him for whatever He wants to do with it, and then everything else falls in line. So we've been going through this great chapter, and I, I told you that when we get down here around verse 9 to the end of the chapter, it starts to deal with the great character qualities of God. And I told you that these great uh, character qualities of God are really what I call in my own personal life the reality verses of life. These are the verses that really help me understand what Christianity really is. Remember I talked about pretending, and, and this is something that we all do. This is, you know, not just... We all have a problem of thinking that we're probably more spiritual than we are. And, uh, you know, we build ourselves into a mindset that many times is just not reality. And I've always found that verses like this make me force, it forces me to look at who I really am versus what I do or how I think. And I think they're invaluable uh, for my own personal life, and I'm sure uh, they'll be invaluable to you. And, uh, you know, the absolute importance of you and me, especially where we're at in our church right now, with what we're going to try to accomplish in this next phase, in this next level, uh, how important it is to understand uh, from the Bible standpoint what it really takes to be God's man uh, or God's woman. And we talk a lot about that, you know, and we all know people who are great Christians and, uh, you know, some who are not so great and all everything in between. But... These principles are what it takes to be God's man. And God's man or God's woman is never about how much of the Bible you know. I've known guys who knew the Bible left and right, and they were some of the biggest scoundrels you ever met in your life. Not about that. Um, it's about the character qualities of God being in your life and emulating himself from the inside out through everything that, that we do. And to me, as much as I fall short of in my own personal life, I know where the bottom line is. So let's begin reading in verse 9 again, and we'll come down through here, and, and uh, we, uh, uh, we'll start making some comments about it here. It says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another, with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that do weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceable with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Father, we come to you today, and we're mindful of things today that we want to remember as we come to you before we open up the Word of God and really get into this today. First of all, I want to thank you for those that have come today. They've come today, Lord, because in their hearts they want to learn something from you. And Lord, I know that I'm probably the last person that has anything of any value to say, uh, Lord, to anybody about you. Uh, Lord, it's only as you work through me and as you will, I allow the Spirit of God to manifest itself through what I say that these dear people that have come today, Father, in this weather to get something from you will leave uh, fulfilled. So, Father, I ask you today, first of all, to uh, work through me, to take all my inabilities and my frailties and all my uh, things, Lord, that hold me back. And, and uh, Lord, I pray that you'll just cover those under the blood and, and, and use me, Father, today to minister to your people. We pray for our boys that are down south, Lord, and uh, pray that you'll give them uh, a good day today. That, uh, Lord, uh, as we big build leaders in this church, that you give us the opportunity for these young men uh, and uh, to, uh, to go and to really learn uh, the practical side of it. And, Lord, help us to balance it all out. Help the older men, Lord, and ladies to help me with the younger ones. And let's, Father, help us this next year to do everything that uh, we need to do to get up to that level that you'd have us to be to train your people. We love you. We ask you now to take this time, and we'll be careful to give you the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want to introduce you to a great verse this morning and as we start to come through here. And many of you probably know this verse already. Uh, I know a lot of people read it and they, they hear people use it, but they don't always understand it. So let me, uh, but it's going to be a verse that we're going to talk about a lot uh, in the next year or so. And it's something that I want to introduce you to today, at least the concept of it, uh, now that we're in Romans chapter 12 and where we're going. It's found in Proverbs chapter 27. Uh, and in Proverbs chapter 27, I want you to look at verse 17. Now, this verse is used a lot, and guys use it, women use it. Uh, most people, as I said, they, don't, they, they use it, and because they, they know it's a good verse, they, they don't always understand what the verse is saying. And I want you to not only know the verse, and if, you have a, if you're taking notes or you have, this is a verse you need to mark in your Bible, because especially with where we're going to go here in the next five or six, seven years, the Lord tarries is coming. But the verse, Proverbs 27, 17, simply says this, Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Now, that's a great verse. And what it basically is talking about there, and I'm going to show you how it works, is that God's people ought to sharpen each other. We ought to rub off the good qualities of God with each other. One of the things about the character qualities that's found in this chapter is that when you put them in your life, you want to give those things to other people by example. In the ministry, and you want to remember this, the ministry is not about how much you know about the Bible. And now, when we get into these times now, I'm telling you things that, that you people, whatever level you're on, need to... I mean, I wish I had these things somewhere where I could put the things that I want you to remember in red, but I can't. But the bottom line is this. Leadership is never about how much you know about the Bible. Leadership in, in Christianity is you lead by example. 
And you take the principles of the Word of God through the growth process that we start when you come in here and work you through it and bring you up the ladder spiritually, so to speak. But as you build the character qualities of God into your life, uh, leaders, men and women, come to the point where their leadership is based on the examples of these principles that they have. And it's, it's, it's very important. Now, the context or the concept here of iron sharpeneth iron, uh, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend, is a very good principle. And what it's simply saying is this. Iron in iron, iron in iron, they have the same hardness. When you sharpen something, you've got to have something harder than what you're trying to sharpen. In other words, <clears throat> when you get a file and that file is going to file metal, and you start to file it, and you see the shavings fall in the ground, the reason why that's happening is because the file is a harder metal than what you're trying to file. <clears throat> so the harder metal <clears throat> rubs the softer metal, the pieces fall off, you can shape it any way you want to, <clears throat> but you never, really, you never really reshape the file. The file will always be the file. <clears throat> and that's not what he's talking about here. Here... He's talking about that iron sharpeneth iron because it's the same metal. Not one one is harder than the other. They both wear equally. And what he's saying here is this. You and I are likened to iron in this particular passage here. And what he's saying is that when you get around people and you associate with people, we use the expression that, you know, we rub off on people or people rub off on you. What Christians ought to do And this is what Christian leaders have to do. They have to always be of such that the people they associate with, the people they do things with, the people within the church or the younger Christians that we have around us, we as older Christians, by our character qualities in our life, need to shape that younger Christian. You know why a lot of you are in this church? A lot, of, and this is, a, this is this concept in a very basic form. <clears throat> you know why a lot of you were in this church? You knew somebody in this church who had something that you didn't have as far as God was concerned. And it intrigued your mind to the place that you said, <clears throat> you know what, I'm not really happy. I'm not really fulfilled. This person always seems to be happy. They're always talking about, <clears throat> you know, loving their church. I don't really love my church. I go here because you got to go to a church. But I'm not, and when you, when, you, when you come, you find out really what is lovable about, this, lovable about this place. It isn't the building, it isn't me. It's the Bible and the Holy Spirit of God that takes the Word of God and helps you. You know what you just did? And some of you were in this church this morning because of that very unfolding of events. In its basic form, they saw your love for God, your exuberance for the things of God, help shape them to get them where they're at today, here. And that that process continues. And it's an incredible concept that, that, you know, we either shape people for God by how we live our lives, or we're going to shape them uh, for the world. I've seen older Christians in my years in ministry, I've seen, and and I've seen older Christians who they don't even know that this happened, probably, (coughs) I've seen older Christians who were not really committed get around younger Christians and become friends with them or do things with them. And because of their non-commitment, you know, that younger Christian got a bad example of what Christianity is, and they they didn't sharpen them, they dulled them. 
And in time, maybe the older Christian stays in church because they've been around for a long time, but they become what the Bible calls a stumbling block for the younger Christians. And those younger Christians stumble over something. They see something. uh, It bothers them. Or maybe they have a problem in their life that they can't, they're dealing with. And they've never said anything to anybody about it. But it was, the devil always gets into details. And he'll take that very thing in somebody's life that's a Christian who should know better and use it to hurt the younger Christian. The thing that we've got to remember is the great principle of Romans chapter 14, verse 7. We've not got the Romans chapter 14 yet, but when we do... It'll be a great time, but it simply says this, no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. And you either shape people for God by the character qualities we have in our lives, or we shape them for the world or dull them, would be a better way, to, to the things of God and give them to the world by how we live our lives. You know a great example of this? And I'm sure you all know people, when I say this, that you can put their picture in this this illustration I'm giving you. You give me a, a godly man and woman who have been married for 40 or 50 years, a long time, and you begin to see exactly what this thing is talking about here in this concept. By being married 40, 50 years and getting through all of the things that they went through in life, the good times and the bad times, and God being the center of their life and trying to work the thing down, you know what they've done? They've sharpened each other. And you know what sharpening each other means? It means that you simply, when you, when you shape something, you shape it to fit something. The old proverbial, you know, you can't put a, a square peg in a round hole. Well, you can if you take the square peg and make it round. And that's what building Christians is. We got a round hole and we're square pegs. The Bible makes the square peg so it fits in the hole, see? And, of course, that's exactly what happens when, uh, when you do these things in other people's life. You, you, you fit together. And what happens is, is in a husband and wife relationship, uh, the wife makes up for the, her strengths make up for the husband's weaknesses. And then vice versa, the husband's strength makes up for the wife's weaknesses. And they fit together in doing whatever they're going to do in life for God. You know why? That concept, iron sharpeneth iron. It isn't a case where you take a harder piece of metal and shape somebody. It's that I'm made of iron and you're made of iron, and when I shape you by, by our time together, you also shape me. It isn't, look at me, I'm the big hard file who can just make you into anything I want. That's not how it works. In life, we have to sharpen each other. And we do that by our countenance. We do that by the people and the situations that we associate with. And that's why it's so important for all of us to understand these great principles. And this is, again, why I tell you all the time about how important role models are. I read Jason Whitlock's column here. It wasn't last week. I think it was the week before. And I, I, I don't have no love for Jason Whitlock. I like to read what he says sometimes, you know. And I don't have to like somebody or agree with him to, uh, to necessarily learn something from him. <clears throat> but, you know, he was talking about role models in sports. And how that uh, we might as well get our mindset that uh, there are no more role models in sports. You take a guy that's 20, 21, 22 and give him $80 million a year, you know, and he can buy whatever he wants and he gets spoiled because he gets the adoration of the world, you know, and, and all of those things. They don't make very good role models. And he said something, and 
obviously, I don't think Jason Whitlock is a Christian. I mean, I don't know him, but uh, I, I would think that he would be. But, but he, what he said was very Christian in, what he, in, a, in a biblical principle. He said, you know what? We need to quit looking to the world for role models, and we need to start being role models ourselves. Parents role models for their kids. And I can't think of a better piece of advice for any church that the older Christians, through the principles of the Word of God, start being aware of the younger Christians around them and make sure that through the principles of the Word of God and what we say and what we do, that we are the role models for the younger Christians coming up. And instead of making them dull by some of the things that we allow to go on in our lives, that we only look at them as sharpening them. I've told you this before. I have one simple philosophy in my life that, that I would put across the board. And I think it's a very good one. and It would be good for anybody, certainly any leader in this church. And my philosophy of life is simply this. I try to leave people better than I find them. Now, that may just be a cheerful smile and a hello and a pat on the back. Uh, I, when, I see, when I see school safety guards and I'm running someplace and out there and they're getting the kids across, you know what I'll do? I'll stop and walk over to them and I'll say to them, you know what? You probably don't hear this very often, but I want you to know I appreciate what you do. I want to leave people better than I found them. I, I was eating uh, a couple of weeks ago up to uh, uh, Mr. Goodsense up in Lee Summit, and uh, I, I love their penny club sandwiches. So I'm sitting over there, and I'm, and I'm eating my food, and this couple comes in to get their food, and they're over on the other side, and a young couple, nice-looking couple, and uh, he reaches across and takes her hand, and they bow their head, and they ask the blessing on the food. Well, you know what? You don't see that very often today, and that really impressed me. So I, you know, finished my food, and, you know, and I walked over to him on the way out, and I said, I don't mean to disrupt your meal, but I want you to know. I said, I watched you guys ask the blessing on your food, and I said, I want to tell you that that was a real testimony and a blessing to me. You don't find that in very many couples today. And I said, I don't want to interrupt your meal, but I want to tell you that's a good testimony, and praise the Lord for that. And they were shocked, you know, that somebody would come over. But you know what? I promise you this. I promise you this. The rest of that day, and probably maybe for a long time in their life, they'll never forget the fact that some stranger came over and, 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 and told them what a blessing it was in the world that we live in to see a young couple pray over their food. Always want to leave people better than you find them. And it's easy to do. It's not hard. You know what the problem is? We're not looking around where to do it. Many times it'll become the very opening. I didn't pursue it that day because I didn't feel led by the Spirit of God to do it. I felt like all God wanted me to do was go over and, and just tell them what I thought. But what an opening that could have been if I could have said, I'm a pastor. I wasn't going to say that because you had to see me. I had about four days' growth of beard. I had a pair of camouflages on. I could have definitely, they would have thought, oh, you must be in the church of the wilderness, you know, or something like that. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm, I'm careful how I present myself. Uh, but anyway, but that's not what God wanted me to do. But there's always openings in things like that. You're going to find times that you encourage somebody, and it's like somebody who's got the flu. And you know how you get the flu and you get that big hard lump down in your stomach, and you know you're going to throw up. It's just a matter of where and when. But you know it's coming. You know there's a lot of people like that in life, only the problems, the, the things they're going to throw up are problems in their life. I've been in situations where you just said one encouraging word to somebody and, whoa, it's all over you, man. They're just waiting for somebody to give them an open door. And those are the things that 
when you become, get these principles in your life, <clears throat> these are the things that really, uh, really uh, are important. And that's why the importance of role models in everything that we do. I have one for everything I do in the Bible because I believe the Bible is the final authority. I don't believe I should be doing one thing as far as my ministry is concerned that I don't find the principle or the model somewhere in the Word of God in a major case. But, but it's a, and it doesn't mean that, you know, you, you, you put the bathrooms on the left side or the right side. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about in the major issues of ministry. And by the same standard, we as God's people... Us older Christians, and some of you ones have been here just four, three or four years who have moving up this ladder. The thing that you've got to look at is the introduction to this verse, that iron sharpeneth iron. And you're going to sharpen somebody's countenance for God or you're going to make them dull. And that's the key. That's the key. You know, witnessing for God or being a testimony is not tough. Many times we think we've got to preach some sermon or get on... Uh, my space or your face or ugly face or whatever it is and, and put something out. No, it's just simply looking to leave somebody better than they find them. That the character qualities that you have of God in you sharpen other people and always leave them better uh, than you find them. You know, in the Bible, I don't even have to tell you this. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about a wise man and a foolish man. And when the Bible says, you know, uh, iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpen the countenance of his friend. I mean, all through the Bible, you find there are wise men and there are foolish men. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 says that he that, uh, he that walketh with wise men shall be wise. Why? Because wise men that you hang out with, in this case, wise in the Bible, will sharpen your countenance. And it says, the rest of that verse simply says, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Why? Because a fool is going to take the edge off of you and you won't be as sharp as you would be uh, if you're hanging out with somebody who's following the principles of the Word of God. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. What does it say? It says, evil communication corrupt good manners. You hang out with people who are constantly negative. You hang out with people who are constantly complaining. You hang out with people who never see God in anything but always see the downside of things? That's going to rub off on you. It's going to become a problem in your life. And in time, in time, it's going to, it's going to dull you just by association. This is why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, that we're not to have any fellowship with the works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, when you look at that verse in the Bible, it didn't say have no fellowship with the workers of darkness. That would be people. It says the works of darkness. You've got to have contact with unsaved people, but you've got to limit yourself. Hey, I've seen many a young gal and a young guy in my years in ministry who really had it on, 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 was on top of it and really wanted to be a witness, and they would get back in some kind of contact with their unsafe friends, uh, and they would get involved in something that they were doing with the purpose of maybe being a testimony. But you can't ever take your figure, finger off the trigger when you're dealing with unsafe people because the devil will always get into the details. And in time, the very people that they got into whatever they were doing with to try to win them to Christ by association because they didn't know where the line was to draw, 
they wound up becoming the victims and, and lost their relationship with God. Christianity and the ministry, ladies and gentlemen, is not something you can ever just take a ho-hum position on and take for granted. It's all, you always have to be sober. You always, and I don't mean sober, you can't drink. I mean, you shouldn't drink, but I don't mean in that sense. I mean, sober is understanding the gravity of what you're doing. And then you've got to be vigilant. You've always got to be looking. As I say many, many times, look around, look behind, look, behind, look ahead. That's the key. And you should not keep company with lousy Christians any more than you keep, should keep company with unsaved people. In both cases, you need to pray for them. But you've got to limit your involvement with them because birds of a feather flock together. Water always seeks its own level. And you've got to realize that uh, you have to choose your friends, Christian friends, carefully. I've seen young ladies make, make the most drastic, terrible mistake in their life when they found some guy and wound up marrying him. And I've heard people tell me this. Well, you know what? I'm done with the bar scene. I'm not going back to the bar. I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to find me a good husband or a good wife in church. You know, your chances of finding a good husband and wife in church are probably as, as nil as finding a good husband and wife in the bar. Please don't fall under the assumption that just because some guy goes to church or some gal goes to church, that that is the green light to marry them. I mean, they might be in the bar right down the road tonight, on the night that you think that, you know, you see them in church on Sunday. That's not how you do it. Don't ever assume anything. That's why the Bible says prove all things. You give it time, and I've said it many, many times. You don't marry, you don't marry the guy or marry the girl. You marry the Christ that's in the guy or in the girl. And sometimes that takes time to reveal itself what you're really dealing with. But these are the character qualities of God that ought to get built into your life on Sunday morning, Thursday night, all our times one-on-one in the Bible together uh, that help you and me uh, not only be the example, and remember examples in the Bible, uh, an example is what you do, but also being an an, an example. An example is not what you do, an example is what you are to other people. And, you know, I, I, I want to give you, you know, we've got a lot that we're going to do here this next year. This next year is going to be an incredible year for our church. I, I can't hardly wait till uh, the, the, our men's meeting and our ladies' meeting to get this thing going, that you can begin to see the scope of what I'm going to try to accomplish. But I'm going to, I'm going to in adjacent to that, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to talk to you about things that uh, uh, you need to uh, bolt onto your life uh, to help make it very successful. My goal in the next eight years in this level is to take every person right now who maybe is on the basic level and gets you up to the next or maybe the, even a level above that. My goal after that is to take the people that are what I call my midline people who have been around for a while and you're ready to go to the next level. And then obviously my number one goal, and this is where I'm going to go to work this year, my number one goal is to get all of you who have accepted responsibility and are on that father level to get you in the next four, five, six years up to that elder level where you really, really understand what it means to work with me in this ministry. That's why these principles are so absolutely important. These principles will be the basis of your success or your failure in getting to that level. Because it isn't about what you know about the Bible. It has nothing to do with that. 
It's about the character qualities of God that you build into your Bible. And I'm not minimizing the knowing the Bible, but I'm saying so many times we think because we know the Bible that we're this great Christian. And that's simply not true. And our simple rule for you to follow here next year, put into play this year, if you're, if you're in a growing process where you're on any level in here, and I've already picked several guys that I'm going to uh, do this with, and, uh, and I'll change them throughout the course of the year so I don't just uh, have the same ones. But, uh, but here's what you need to do. Because we need to begin to be role models to each other. You see, the thing that has been missing to this point in our ministry, and it's just we've got to get to one point before we can get to the next one. The thing that is missing right now in our ministry Uh, We have all accepted responsibility, uh, and you've done really well. But the next step after you learn responsibility is accountability. Because a responsibility without learning accountability will never work for you. And this is where we're at right now. You've learned responsibility well. I can't fault anybody at all. Even some of you basic people that have just come in the last six months, you astound me of what God has done in your life in such a short time. And I, I, I look at your commitment. And you know, and I, 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 that's one of the great advantages of, of me spending time one-on-one with people. You lay out to me. I mean, I, my, my, my schedule has just been absolutely packed since New Year's Eve of people coming in to me and sitting down and saying, hey, you know what, I'm not sure what level I'm on, or I know I'm on this level, or I know I'm here, but the bottom line is this. Tell me. Tell me right now. I don't want to wait till then. Tell me right now what I can be doing to get myself ready to get to that point because I want to get to that level in my life. It just overwhelms me. And yet I understand that that's exactly what happens when God is in the middle of things and gets a hold of your heart. And I'm telling you, a simple rule for you to follow next year in the growth process is begin to hang out with men and women who emulate these character qualities. Find your men and women in this church who in their personal lives have these character qualities, and nobody's perfect, but have these qualities of character and let them help shape you. Let them help sharpen you. Let them help put you on the cutting edge of, the, of this ministry and this walk with, in your walk with God. Let them find somebody who has the quality. And if you're not sure, ask me. You say, hey, you know, this is so-and-so, and I really like him or I really like her, and you know what, would this be somebody that would help me get to that point in my life? I'll be honest with you. I mean, I won't trash the person. Uh, if, uh, if, if, they, if they are, I'll say they're the greatest thing in the world. Go for it. If they're not, I'll just put my arm around you and say, have you ever seen the sunset in Lake Okeechobee in Florida? It's the most magnificent thing you've ever seen in your life. Check it out sometime. Have a nice day. Find people within this church in this next year who will help shape you. Accountability is something we all need. There's never a Christian that ever walked on this planet that doesn't need accountability in everything that they do. The problem is we don't like accountability. By human nature of who we are, we don't like accountability. You know why some people don't go to church any, at all? And yet they, you hear all the time. 
Well, I don't think you have to be a Christian to go to church. No, obviously that's true. But I'll tell you this, you got to be a good, you got to go to church to be everything God wants you to be. I've never understood why somebody could say, well, I'm saved, but I don't go to church when the Bible says that Christ loved the church and died for it. You think if he loved it and died for it, it might be important for you? But the bottom line is this. You know why they don't do that? It has nothing to do with the building or big or small. You know why they do that? They do that because they know going to a church ushers up some form of accountability. And we don't want to be accountable. That's why your kids, when they hit teenage, that's why they have a problem. You know, the first thing they challenge is authority. You know what challenging authority is? You know what authority is? Accountability. And we're all that same way. I don't care how spiritual you think you are or how spiritual I think I am. There's never a time in my life when I'm faced with something that I know I have to do because it's right, but I don't really want to do it, that I don't grinch at it just a little bit. But then you've been around long enough, you know that that's the best way, so you just do it anyhow. But you never get to the point in your life where you're happy with doing everything right till we get our glorified bodies. That's why you've got to keep growing. That's why the accountability factor of you keeping me accountable and I'll keep you accountable and we work together with the principles of the Word of God. It absolutely will make the difference between New Year's this year for you and New Year's next year for you. And that's the, that's the case. That's the key. You know what? When you come over with me one-on-one, I know you think this. I know you think, and some of you have even said this. Some of you apologize for coming over with me because you think you waste my time. And you've said this many, many times. Many of you, you've said, you know what, I, I don't feel like my and questions are, are that important and there's probably somebody else that could probably take my spot that needs it more than I do. And that's simply not true. The bottom line is this. I've never in my life got to the point, and God help me that I never do, where I think that I'm sitting there with all the answers and going to help you. How many of you that have been over to my house, and Marion knows this is true. Where yet? Marion knows this is true. How many times, Marion, have you sat there and you come up with questions and I went over there and got my pen and wrote things in there that you brought up to me that I didn't see? Number of you. Joe, it happens to Joe all the time when me and Kim used to get all the time. It, all of you. My mind fails me for everybody's face and name, but there's not a time. And maybe I don't write it down on the spot, but I remember it and write it down later. And I want to tell you something. There have been, and I've never told you this, there have been missing parts to my sermon that I didn't have that I got after you left because of something you said. See, that's iron sharpening iron. I'm not the great iron file who cannot be shaped. We shape each other. And you come over and sit down with me and you think, well, Bob's shaping me. Hey, you're shaping me as I'm shaping you. There isn't a time on Thursday night that we don't ask the questions. You see, I've made myself accountable to the Bible. I probably shouldn't give you this secret. You know how I've made myself accountable to the Word of God? Now, I, I spend probably three or four hours a day in the Bible, sometimes more if I can get it. But let me tell you in my mind how I've made myself even more accountable. And most pastors won't do this, and I don't know why, but they just won't. But I found this. I do appointments on a weekly basis. On a, on a heavy week, I'll probably do maybe 25 or 30 people a week, counting all together. Sometimes more, sometimes less. That's 20, 25 hours a week. You realize that many of you come in with issues. Some of you come in with things you're dealing with in ministry. Some of you come in because you're studying Bible. Let me put it this way. 
If I spend an hour a week with you and I have, oh, let's just say 20 people. Let's say I have 20 people to come in and see me and every person is studying a different book of the Bible. You see what that does for me? Not only do I have my own time in the Bible, but because of you, I'm now in 20 other books in the Bible that I would not be in. But because you're in them, I have to be in them. And it keeps me fresh because of where you're at. You know what I've done? I never told you this. You know what I've done in my mind? I've made myself accountable to you in our one-on-one. You think you made yourself accountable to me. It's a two-way street. I'll teach you. You teach me. Why? Because iron sharpeneth iron. And I'm better for it because of our time together. Because you shape me, you sharpen me by me sharpening you. That's the concept we must develop in this church if we're going to get to that next level. And we have it ready to go. It is absolutely ready to go. Now, with that in mind, let's look at some more of these great truths for, for us to live by. And we'll pick it up in verse 14. That's where we stopped last time. And here's what he says. <clears throat> bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now, the great verse in the Bible, not in the King James Bible, but the only reason I use the NIV or the ASV or the RSV <clears throat> because there's a verse in there that's not in the King James Bible, and I use it quite... In fact, there's two, and I use them quite often. The first verse is, do unto others before they do it to you. And the second verse is, lying is an abomination in the sight of God, but a very present help in a time of trouble. <clears throat> now, are they not obviously in the Bible, <clears throat> but they won't work for us. Some people live their lives like it is in the Bible. <clears throat> Bottom line is this. Verse 14 says, you bless them that persecute you. You bless and you curse not. See, this is a reality verse. I gave you New Year's Eve. <clears throat> I told you that... When you move up to, through ministry, and you learn the principles, and you apply them, and you get people that you work with and help, and you get, sit down with people, and and those of you who are doing that active with me, I know you know what I'm about to say, because we talk about it all the time, but you know what? That great verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 18 says this, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. You know, when you start to deal with the ministry and deal with people, <clears throat> there's always some hard things you've got to deal with. There will, be, there will be things that I would not like to know, but when you start to work with people, you've got to work through them. I say to myself sometimes, <clears throat> I have enough problems in my own life. How in the world am I going to walk this person through this? But the bottom line is, I'm not. God is going to do it. But the thing you've got to realize and understand, and it's a key, that when you grow in the Word of God and you start to be used in ministry, you're going to learn a lot of things. <clears throat> the, the, the shades are going to come off your eyes. You're going to see the reality <clears throat> of the world and the flesh and the devil and the destructive force that it does in people's lives. I think one of the hardest things <clears throat> you've got to deal with in dealing with ministry is the people that you know <clears throat> exactly what they need. <clears throat> you know how easy it is to fix their problem, <clears throat> and yet you know you don't have a snowball's chance and you know where in fixing it because they're not going to do what they need to do. Most frustrating thing in the, in, in the ministry. 
because you, you can't be in a ministry without loving people. And you can't be in a ministry and love people without wanting to help people and wanting to see do what's right. But the reality you better figure out is <clears throat> not everybody's going to do what's right. In dealing with people, there's two great lessons you've got to learn. <clears throat> and the last two I was kidding you about, these two I'm serious about. And one of them is in the Bible, and the other one is just, I can give you for almost 40 years' experience in the, in the ministry. And the quicker you learn these two lessons, the better off you're going to be. The first lesson is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, and it simply says yes, this. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I mean, you're going to come to the place where uh, you get persecution in your life for one or two reasons. You get it in your life because you did something stupid and now you're paying the price tag for it, or simply because you want to do what's right with God and you to do what's right with God, you got to open yourself up. And when you open yourself up, you're vulnerable. And these are things you have to learn. And you learn it by understanding the first lesson. Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And then you learn the second lesson, which is just a lesson of experience for me. But it is very important. And it's simply this. In ministry, in ministry, in ministry. No good deed will go unpunished. You're going to get clobbered if you do what's right. You're going to wonder sometimes why you're getting it when you're trying to do and all you're trying to do is help people. I've often thought of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the only man on planet Earth. Now, you can find a lot of fault with me because I'm just a human being. <clears throat> Somebody wants to cast fault at me. They, it's easy, just like they can cast fault at you. But take Jesus. Here's a man who all of his life never did one thing to hurt anybody. And yet nobody wanted anything to do with him. And everybody was out to nail him. You know why? Because of that verse. And you want to see the principle at work that no good deed will go unpunished? How about it? How about when he, how about when he healed the blind guy and they come back and said, he did it on the Sabbath day. Every time he did something good, there was somebody out there that found something wrong with it and they clobbered him. Get used to that. Get used to that. That's the way it is when you do in ministry. And in ministry, and you better learn this early, one of the ways the devil will try to discourage you is by the people who persecute you. Now, we learned this, or I guess we went over it again, on New Year's Eve. Remember when I took you back to Ezra and Nehemiah, and I showed you in one place they're building the temple, picture your body. The other place they're building a church, uh, building a wall, picture the church. But in both cases, in both cases, once they started that work, what happened? The adversaries came after them. And I'm just telling you, if you're going to get into ministry and you're going to get to this next level uh, this year or get, start to work toward that to, to the father, to the elder, or you're going to start coming up the other levels. And, hey, I'm going to take everybody who wants to do something for God and get you there wherever you're at right now if you want to. But the process, these are the things that you have to learn. One, your walk with God will not be built on how much you know about the Bible, but rather the character qualities that you start putting into your life. Two, there'll be a price to pay for it. There'll be a price to pay for it. But that's just the way it goes, and you just have to deal with that. Now, verse 21 at the end of the chapter simply says this, and this is good advice for us. It tells us to overcome evil with good. 
There's a lot of aspects to the ministry I want to teach you in the next five or six years. I'm not going to be in a hurry about it, but I want you to learn them. And I know that everybody won't learn them. I'm asking God to simply do this. I'm asking God in our church, and I've been praying this for almost a year, but now it's, it's, it's almost a reality. I've, been asking, I've asked God to give me out of this church any man or woman, no matter if you just got saved, if you just came into the church, it doesn't matter. You may be just starting discipleship. I don't care. I don't care where you're at. I'll ta- as long as you've got the heart to be God's man and God's woman and you want that in your life, that's all I ask for. But I'm asking God to, in these next four or five years to give me, out of this church, the men and women who simply will say to me, Bob, I don't care what level. Or, Bob, I want to get to this level. Or, this is where I'm at. I don't know where I'm at. I don't care where I'm at. I just want to do what's right. And to let me have them and then to build these principles of accountability into us on whatever level we're at and where we're going. If we will do that, we'll leave this church in good state when I have to give it up and the next guy has to take it over. And that is my goal. That is my goal. There's many aspects of the ministry. But one of the things that I'm going to teach you in time is to speak the Christian language. Mm -hmm. You know, if you were going to a missionary and you were going to Africa, China, India, they'd take you to, you go to mission school someplace, and they put you in, in time, they put you into a language school. Because if you're going to go to be a Chinese missionary, don't you think you ought to learn to speak Chinese? If you're going to Germany, don't you think you ought to speak German? Well, don't ever deceive yourself that in the Christian realm, in America, that Christianity has its own language. And one of the things that you have to do in ministry is be able to understand what is really being said. Because many times they're saying one thing, but you have to interpret it in basic of the principles. Let me give you, for instance, in the book of, in the book of Proverbs covers all these, and we'll get into them in time. But Proverbs chapter 26, verse 19 <clears throat> is a great principle. <clears throat> and it throws out the principle, and this is an easy one to understand. <clears throat> he says, I think that, I mean, this is not a verbatim quote on it, but he says, when a man wants to deceive his neighbor, he'll do something and then he'll come back and say, oh, I was just in sport. Let me interpret that for you. You don't like your neighbor or some Christian. You do something to hurt them, or you say something to hurt them, and then when you get caught on the carpet, what do you do? Oh, I'm just kidding. See? You've got to learn to interpret the Christian language. It's part of learning the dialect of understanding what people are saying, what they say. How many went to see Sherlock Holmes on the movie? How many went to see it? One, two. Keep them up. All right. We don't go to movies in this church, so right now every head bowed and every eye closed and you come on up. No. I went just because a bunch of the guys were going and I thought I'd like to hang out with the guys. It was all right. But see, I'm an old Basil Rathbone guy. Steve knows what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Basil Rathbone. Somebody raise your hand and tell me who Basil Rathbone is. Yes, ma'am. Pardon me? No, he's not. He should have been. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Back in the 30s and the 40s, they had a whole... Now, you can't... Don't shake your head. No. Yes, honey. You know you're not that old. You don't remember seeing those. 
nobody 19 could remember back that far. Now she feels really good. See, always leave them better than you find them. You're going to walk out of here like this. I'm young, I'm young, I'm young, but remember, we all pretend. No, just kidding. And I'm really working on pretending right now. You know, I'm going to get my hair growing, I'm going to get spikies on it. Think that'll help? No, it won't help. Back in the 30s and the 40s, there's a whole series of Sherlock Holmes and Basil Rathbone. He was an English actor. Played the greatest Sherlock Holmes that you could ever see. I mean, there was episode. Every time you can still catch him on TV sometime. But it was great. And as a kid growing up, I used to love Sherlock Holmes. I didn't know what a value it was. Because back then, they, they said a lot of principles that were true in life that are based on the Bible that you don't find today and a lot of things that go on. And I'll never forget, in his movie Scandal in Bohemia, which was done in 1938, Sherlock Holmes said to Dr. Watson, classic line, he says, Dr. Watson, you must learn to observe. He says, you see, but you must learn to observe because the two are not the same. I thought about that years later, and I said, he must have been a preacher. Because that's exactly what you've got to do in ministry. You don't, we all see, but you've got to learn to observe. Observation is not the same as seeing. You can see something, but when you understand the biblical principles, you observe what you see. And I'm telling you, there's a Christian dialect out there that in time, you have to learn, just like a missionary going to Africa has to learn Swahili. I'll give you an example. People, get, and I've seen this all my life, people get mad at God. They have an issue with God. They're not man enough or woman enough to deal with the issue. So like you and me, we all do this. They want to blame it on somebody else so they don't have to feel any accountability for it. So what do they do? They get mad at the church. They'll get mad at you, and they'll get mad at me. And they'll say something like this. Well, that church isn't for me anymore, you know. I'm going to a church. You know, I'm not going back there. They this, they're that, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And you know what? You hear that, and you say, wow, they're, they're not going to church anymore. They're going to find another church. The problem is, when you observe it, six months later, they're not going to any church. Oh, they may go every once in a while. There's no Sunday night service. There's no Wednesday night service. Let me translate that. Let me take it from the Christian language and put it into the Christian dialect. I don't want to go to any church. But I'm not man enough or woman enough to say that, so I'm going to find some other buddy I can blame it on and say I'm going to another church, but then just simply off the scenes, never go to another church. You don't just see, you observe. You, you, don't, you don't listen what people say. You observe what they do. That's how you learn the Christian dialect. And boy, if you're ever going to in ministry, that's exactly what you need to do. You've got to learn to translate what people are saying and put it into the context of what they're really doing. And, um, you know, he says, he says basically that we are to bless them that persecute you, bless and curse not. Now, I've got to tell you, that's not the easiest thing to do sometimes. Jesus did it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Stephen did it in Acts chapter 7. But you know one of the greatest failures in the Bible of it? 
is over in Acts chapter 23, verses 2 and 3. The Apostle Paul, he failed miserably at it, at least one time anyhow. Can't blame him for it, but you know what happened? They got him over there in Acts chapter 23, and the Roman governors all got him. And the high priest hit man comes up, and the high priest asked Paul a question, and Paul gives him an answer that he didn't like. What does the guy do? Walks up and hauls off and hits him right in the mouth. Now, what did Paul do? He said, bless you, my son. He said, you know what? I just wrote this a while back. Bless those that bless thee and curse those that curse thee. No, that's wrong. Bless those that bless thee and bless those that curse thee. That's not what he said. You know what he said? He looked at him with a snarl on his face and he said, God smite you, you whited wall. You know what that means? You know what a whited wall is? Jesus used the example back in uh, Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount with the scribes and the Pharisees. A whited wall is a wall that has been washed over white that is dirty underneath. And he's saying to him, God smites you. He didn't make it. He failed. It's hard sometimes. Christ did it. Stephen did it. And we should always try to do it. But I'll tell you right now, it isn't always going to work. If Paul failed and he was the greatest Christian that ever lived, that certainly doesn't put you and me in a good state. But we ought always to try. And when we fail, then we ought to do the best we can to make it up, to make it right. Personally, for me, I think the greatest example of this uh, that shows the cause and effect of why we should always try to do it is found in a, in a principle, in a, in a story, uh, a church history of William Tyndale. Now, I don't know if you know anything about William Tyndale. If you're going to start Bible uh, church history, you'll know him here in, in a while. But William Tyndale did the second English translation. And yeah, he did that around 1492, about the time Columbus was sailing the ocean blue. And uh, he comes after a guy by the name of Wycliffe. And all the way back in about 1380 to 1390, you find that Wycliffe took the, and, and produced the first English translation. This guy comes on the scene, Tyndale, and uh, he produces the second one. And uh, where, uh, believe it or not, Wycliffe escapes the Roman Catholic Church's wrath all of his life and dies at an old age, it wasn't so lucky for Tyndale. They hated his Bible. His Bible got more circulation in, in Wycliffe. And finally, the Roman Catholic Church got him. They got him because he lived in England. And during that time, Henry VIII was the king of England. And uh, England was pro-Roman Catholic. And they hated, they hated this guy. They hated him. So what they did is they set a trap for him and they got him. They put him in a dungeon, they gave him a quick trial, and they sentenced him to death. And uh, this shows you the anger that they had. It shows you the anger that they had. Well, I'll show you how to great extremes they go. Remember I told you how that Wycliffe, the Catholic Church, never killed him and he died an old man? The Catholic Church hated him and his English translation so much. You know what they did? Eighty years after he was dead, they dug up his body and burned him at the stake. That'll show him, won't it? <laughs> now, you know you've got to be insane with rage to do something like that? The guy was dead 80 years, and he's still a stench in your mouth to the sack that you've got to go find his grave, dig him up because you hate him so bad, and then burn him at the stake like he's going to feel it. Well, they took William Tyndale, and they put him in prison. They gave him a, uh, a quick trial, and then they executed him. And again, Roman Catholic Church is just never satisfied with killing you once. They want to kill you twice. They burned him at the stake. But before they burned him at the stake, they strangled him. 
I'm not sure what the stake part of it was or why they burned him, but they strangled him. And they put in this big, they put in this big, send in this big guy, and they, and it, strangling back then was not just choking a chicken. They tie, put you up to a pole like this and tied you to a pole like this with their hand behind your back, and then they put a leather strap behind it, and back here, the guy put his foot up on that pole like that and just pulled your neck till you just eyeballs popped. And he did it in public. And it was heard and testified that, that as they were choking the life out of him, they heard him cry out, Oh, dear God, please, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Seventy-five years later, God answered that prayer. He took Henry VIII off the throne, put James I on the throne, and 75 years later, it was the king of England, James I, who gave the official decree to dump the Catholic Bible and to put the King James Bible for all of England. You know what God did? That old boy was praying down a blessing on the very king that was killing him. And God honored it. I've often wondered what I'd be praying if that was my situation. What would you be praying? We'd probably be praying, oh, God, get me out of here. We'd probably be saying, hey, I'll tell you what I want to know. Who you want to know? You want to know who the other Christians are? I'll tell you where they're all at. i got their name, phone numbers, or my computer right here. Let me have you all. Give me the password. Just don't kill me. He didn't care about himself. He didn't care about whatever was happening to him. He cared about one thing, getting the Word of God to his nation. Wow, what a great example. I've never forgotten that. I read that probably almost 40 years ago, and it stays with me to this day. You never know. Here was a guy who had every right to, to curse the people that were persecuting him, who were taking a stand against the truth and were against everything that was God doing, but instead he blessed them, and he asked God to take that same nation that was choking his life out and to give them the Bible. And God did God did. Verse 15. John, when Jimmy does this, there's ice in it. Over in the corner, John. <laughs> Verse 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, <clears throat> and weep with them that do weep. Now, this is almost as hard as the last one. You see why these are the reality? You know what my desire is in this when I'm in this section? My really desire, honest to God, you know what it is? Get through this as fast as we can. But we can't. But I'm with you. Get along, little doggie, get along. I'm ready to go. You know, and, and I'm sure if you've been saved for any length of time, and I don't mean to throw water on you new Christians, but you've got to learn it sooner or later. This is why I'm telling you to find the right role models and, and hook up with that and iron sharpen with iron and all that. But I'm going to tell you something. God's people are the most jealous, envious people you're ever going to meet in your life. I've seen it all my life. If there's ever a fake side to us, it's right here. I mean, something happens good to somebody, and, uh, you know, you, we get that smug attitude because uh, you, we think it should have happened to us. That happens all the time. It's called covetousness in the Bible. I'm telling you. I, I, in, in looking at leaders and <clears throat> training leaders, I never look at the surface, brother. I'm always looking at what goes on behind the surface, underneath the surface, behind the scenes. You know, why, you know why we get this way? <clears throat> Other than the fact that obvious that we're out of fellowship with God and quit growing? I'll tell you why. Because we're not content with what we have and who we are right now. That Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, it says that godly with contentment is great gain. 
You know where we get into trouble with covetousness? When we're not satisfied with what we have. You know why we're not satisfied with what we have? It's a two-part deal. We're not satisfied with what we have because we're not really satisfied with who we are. So we want more. I had a guy one time, he told me, and I know this guy, we're good friends, and, uh, and he was serious about it. I really believe it. I really believe it. He said, he said, you know what? He said, if I win the lottery, I think it was $92 million. He said, if I win the lottery, I'm going to give you $20 million for your church. I thought that was a good idea. We'll talk about that in a second. He comes to the place where he says, uh, I'll give you $20 million. You see, contentment has to be with where we have and what we've got right now. I mean, I've seen people, you get excited about when somebody, uh, somebody needs something and you need it too, and God gives it to them, but he doesn't give it to you. See how tough that is? I mean, I'm just talking to you as a human being today. I mean, you know what? You need a car. Your car's on the blink. And you got a friend that needs a car. Or maybe their car's not as bad as your car. And somebody comes over and says, here, I got a nice car. We don't drive it anymore. God put it in my heart to give it to you. Here it is. And you're sitting there saying, praise the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Lord, I needed a car, too. And mine's not as good as theirs. Now, uh, what's the deal with that? Hey. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. You and I ought to get to the place in our life that when we're content with what we at, who we are, that you can rejoice with anybody and whatever happens, even if you don't have it or you need it, because you know what? You're confident in the fact that God's taking care of you, and no matter, in fact, you didn't get it, you know that He's going to take care of you and everything that you need. That's contentment. That's, the Bible says over there, in, uh, back in First Timothy again in 6, 8, it says, with, if you have food and raiment, they're with to be content. We live in a situation where I've seen it happen. I've seen people put themselves in financial ruin because of the fact that they got to have a house like somebody else, and if they don't have a bigger house, they think that, that I don't know, that there's some status symbol. I've seen people that if, if, if somebody, a, a gal went out and bought this, that somebody else says, i got to go out and buy the same thing. Like they're keeping up with something. And the truth of the matter is that problem with us is the reason why we can't rejoice because we're not content with what we have. And we're not content with what we have because of the fact that we, we're, not, uh, um, we're just not uh, satisfied with who we are. Then it says, the next part of that verse, keep that in mind about the $98 million. I'm going to tell you a good story about it here in a minute. Then it says, weep with them that do weep. Now, one of the things that you're going to find dealing with people is a lot of heartache, a lot of deep water. I have people come in. Some of you are sitting in this room. You know, when you came in, you were just about under the water. You just about had as much of it as you could take, and you were all your life was upside down. You had all kinds of problems. And the greatest testimony today is the fact that God is real, is the fact that you're here this morning. Had a little sweetheart girl Thursday night in Bible study. One of our visitors wanted me to explain how I could, um, uh, how I, how do you know that God was God was real, real? I mean, how is God always there? How do you explain that concept? And obviously, you know, I took her the easy route because I didn't want to, uh, I, I didn't want her, I didn't want her to, uh, you know. I want to be very careful how I dealt with it because there's a good chance I'm going to get to work with her here in the next couple of weeks. And I, I didn't want to uh, give her one of my smart aleck answers, you know, that I would give maybe somebody else. Not really smart aleck, but I wanted to be very careful with what I said. But you know how I know that God is real? Now, how I know? Now, I don't care how he started, where he was, where, we, where he was before the beginning and all those things. That doesn't bother me. All I care about is that he's real. I don't care where he's been. 
I just know, I want to know that he's real. And you know how I know he's real? I know he's real because I've seen him in your life and in my life. I don't need proof where did God come from. I just want to worry about where God is at now. Is he where I want to be with him now? And the reason I know it's true, some of you. Remember how it was when you came in the first time you walked in here? Your life was upside down. You had so many issues and so many problems. I remember some of you telling me you thought you'd never get through it. Well, you did. You did. You did. You know why? Because of the fact that uh, uh, he got you through it. But you know what? You're going to meet people like that. Some of you, God's going to put you in a scenario and put you at work with somebody or put you at school with somebody or put you somewhere with somebody that's got the deepest problems they have and it got the weight of the world on their shoulders. And sometimes the only thing that you can do that will do all the thing in the world is to sit down, act interested, and listen to where they're at and try to be their friend. Compassion for each other. People go through a lot of tough times. I think the worst thing of it is, is a, in a guess I can example, is in, in the death of a loved one. I, I love doing funerals much more than I do weddings, especially when it's funerals for, unsaved, for, for saved people. Uh, what I, I, have a, I have the greatest time doing funerals. I love doing funerals. I get more done in a funeral than any other public expression of, of what I do out publicly. And to me, there's, there's nothing greater than an opportunity at that time. But there's some tough ones. There's some tough ones. I, I don't do funerals for people that I don't know or, or I don't uh, uh, know that had, I mean, there have been people called me and said, hey, my father died or my aunt died. Would you do the funeral? And I, I'd say, you know what? I said I, I said, I don't mean to be cruel about it. I said, but you know what? If you just pay them another $100, they've got a guy on staff there that'll say everything you want to say. I, I'm not good at getting up and, and, and telling something that isn't true. I mean, I do real good at it one-on-one, -on -one, but I don't do very good at it when it's, when it's public. I just have a tough time getting up and talking about somebody's life with Christ and how much they love God when everybody in that room knows that's not true. I, I just can't do it. Uh, you know, I, what do I say? And, and I don't have to do those kinds. I preached unsafe funerals before. I told you the story years ago about a, a friend of mine that uh, I used to pastor with who was blind. And uh, I used to drive him around because obviously, you know, he couldn't drive. And, and this, guy, this, guy was, this guy was not ashamed of the fact that he was blind. In fact, the first day I met him, he said, let's get this out of the way. I'm blind, I know it, I've dealt with it, I'm fine with it, I've, I do more. I found out in time he saw more being blind than most people could see with their eyeballs. But he was a great guy, and uh, I love him to this day. And uh, I, got on the, I, I got on the elevator with him, and I always have fun with him. I got on the elevator one time with him, and, I, and he doesn't know who's on the elevator or not, see? And so we're on the elevator, just me and him, but he doesn't know. And I, I kind of make it like there's somebody else on there. And, I, and we're going up the thing, you know, and he's sitting there. And I, I, I said, I said ma'am, I said, do you mind if I say something to you? I said, I know I don't know you, but I said, you know what? Honest to goodness, ma'am, you are the ugliest woman I have ever seen in my life. You know? <laughs> and he's over there going, <laughs> you know, he's, you know, he says, he says, oh, there's nobody else on this elevator. You know, <laughs> I used to have fun with him. I don't know if you remember this or not. This has been a long time ago. But, you know, if you go to Chief Stadium, you can't take a thermos in there. You know that? You know why you can't? Because, oh, I don't know, but what, 78, 79? 
uh, somebody got killed with a thermos. Somebody, no, somebody hit him over the head and killed him with a thermos. So that time they went. Well, anyway, this guy did that funeral. And it was, the guy was a biker. And we went to the funeral. And, you know, it was, in that case, when we were standing there, it was the roughest crowd I've ever been in my life. And I thought to myself, this would be a good place to be blind. <laughs> so I walk him up to the thing, you know, and I sit him down and I said, Pulpit's right in front of you, just got to stand up. And, you know, he was really good at it. And, uh, and, and I went down and sat down there and I'm thinking to myself, and, and he walks up to the pulpit and he's going to preach this guy's funeral. Now, I don't to this day know how he got there. There was some connection there, but they asked him to preach the funeral. And this old boy, he never spared any words. And he could hear, you know, people were crying, weeping, and, and, you know, around the thing, you know. And we both knew that this guy was unsaved. This guy was a partier. He was a drinker. He was a biker. I mean, uh, I mean, as far as anybody could tell, you know. And, uh, and, and this guy got up there, and I'm sitting down in the front row and uh, over to the side. And he gets up, and, you know, he's, he's quiet for a moment, and he just doesn't say anything for a few moments. And the crowd settles down, and then comes that dead silence that, you know, like, why aren't you speaking? You know, or is he going to speak? Can he speak? You know, and, and sometimes that's a great thing to use. And he just simply opened by saying this. He said, folks, he says, I hear a lot of crying out there today. He says, let me tell you some things that a blind man can see. He says, I hear a lot of crying out there today. And I would safe to say this. If these tears were sh would have been shed by people on their knees praying for this young man when he was growing up, we probably would not be having his funeral today. Now I'm thinking... We're going to get out of here and get killed. I mean, I can't even run because I can't leave him, and he can't run. He'll be tripping all over the place. We are dead in the water. <laughs> he preached the greatest funeral I ever heard for an unsaved man. One of the greatest funerals I ever heard in my life. I, I, I'd have never heard of another funeral. Any, any, I, could never, I could never surpass it. It was absolutely the greatest thing. And even in that, he gave, he gave the comfort, not where this guy was at in eternity, because everybody knew he was lost. But he gave the comfort that if you're lost, God can do something for you. And he basically said, we can't do anything for this kid. He's already made his choice. And he's in heaven or he's in hell based on that choice. Well, everybody knew what that choice was. But then he brought it right back and laid the thing out. Those are tough. There's some tough times. When I preach a funeral for a saved person or even an unsaved person, the greatest text I've ever found, and you've heard me do it if you've been to any of my funerals, is Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If I preach, a, and these are tough, you have to preach a little baby. Boy, I preach a lot of little babies, a little kids. I preached a funeral one time of a, of a little boy that was six or seven years old that his, 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 his daddy bought him a mini bike or something for his birthday, and four days later, the kid was out working on it, and daddy got out in the car and didn't see it and backed out and killed the little kid with his own car. Oh, what a tragic time that was. I'll tell you what, those are the rough ones. Those are the rough ones. And if I deal with an adult that's saved or lost, I usually do Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I've never found, to be honest, I've never found a better verse for doing a funeral for a little baby than Isaiah 57. I've never found a better verse that if you take your time and walk your way through it, that because that, that, everybody's asking the question why and how. I've heard them, I've seen anger at those things because they think that God is unjust because God, and these are the things, listen to me now, these are the things you've got to learn to diffuse in situations like this because there'll be times down the line where some of you will do a funeral. Weddings are easy. 
Everybody says, I do. They go out and get drunk, and you're on your way home. It's, it's fine. Funerals are another whole world. And there's times when you have to rejoice like a wedding, but you have to weep. You have to be there. When I'm done doing a funeral, if you notice how I do it, uh, most pastors just go sit down or someone walk out the back. I never do that. When I'm done, when I'm, and I always tell the funeral director, because they always ask you, you know, well, what are you going to do? They want you to set the service, and I just basically say, here's what I'm going to do. You play this song, this song, I'll get up and do my thing, and when I'm done, I'm going to walk over, and I'm going to stand by the head of that casket, and I'm going to stand right there. That'll be the sign that I'm finished. You know why I do that? Because everybody files by, you know, and that, but the reason why I do that is because after everybody goes, that family comes up. And that family, many times, is heartbreaking. And there have been times when we've just put our, when I knew them and I loved them and they were part of my ministry, that we just put our arms around each other and cried and cried and cried. You know, there's sometimes, even when as good as a preacher that you may be, and there's times that even though the Bible is the great comfort and we know that, but there's times in situations like that where there's nothing to say. There's times in situations like that where all you can do is hold them and cry with them. And those are things you've got to learn. These are the character qualities. These are the things. I remember one time I had a boy that was a good kid, and he, he lost a little baby. That little baby lived about four or five months after it was, it was born and it died. Devastated the family. First kid they ever had. And I remember that when they did that funeral, that little white casket and that little baby in there, boy, there ain't nothing, nothing worse than just a small little casket. And that little baby in there, the hardest, roughest time of my life is I had a young gal who was probably, and she grew up in my ministry. She used to come on the bus, and she got saved. Little Robin, remember Robin? And, uh, and she used to come with Robin. And, I, and, and she had a baby, and the baby died. Baby died at birth. And so I went up to see her. And, and I, this, is the, this is the saddest one of the two uh, in my ministry. Uh, there's two times in my life that are absolutely have devastated me that I've never gotten over it. And to this day, I dream about it. I think about it. And it, it'll never leave me. I went up to see her and that baby was dead. And this little girl wanted a baby so bad. And she said, and I'm standing, I'm trying to comfort her. And she says, would you like to see some pictures of my baby? And I'm thinking... Did the baby live for a while? No, no. You know what the pictures were? The pictures were her. They dressed up that little dead baby in a little red thing, and she held that in her arms while they took pictures. And I have never seen a more sadder picture of a mother's face where it basically cried out and said, I got a baby, but it's dead. It was the most devastating thing. What do you say? What, what words? And I, you know me with the Bible, but in a time like that, what verse do you pull out? All things work together for good that love God? Now, that's true, but that's not what they need. No, no. There's time when all you can do is hold them and cry. Yeah, you rejoice the ones that rejoice, but you have to weep with the ones that weep. And this is where it's become so important in people's lives to be there for them. You know, I've sat there many times when somebody has said to me, why, Bob? Why is this? And I remember I was sitting there with a family one time that lost that, uh, that, that little baby boy. 
And at the end, the funeral director was going to come and, and going to take that little casket and put it down in that hole. And the dad said, no, I'll do it. He says, come on, Bob. And he picked up that little white casket and he walked over with tears streaming down his face and he put that casket down in the hole and patted that little casket and then stood back and said, okay, now you can cover it up. I went back to the house and I sat down with him and his wife and he asked me, he says, Bob, why does things like that happen? I did not yet know Isaiah 57. That was pretty early in my ministry. But God gave me something I never forgot. I said, I don't know. I said, I really don't know. But let me tell you what I do know. We don't know it all right now. But you know what I found a number of years ago in Psalm 56, verse 8? The Bible says that God, in Isaiah 56, verse 8, that God has a bottle for our tears. Now, why would God want a bottle for our tears? What is the point? of having a bottle that our tears get put into. And I told him, you know what the point is? Because right now those tears run down our face and we don't know why. So God collects them in a bottle. And one of these days he'll open that bottle and we get up there with him and he'll drop those tears out. And everyone that falls down, he'll explain what he was doing and what he did it for. We just got to hold on to the bottle right now. Sometimes that's all you can do. Sometimes that's all you can do. Now look at the verse 16. He says, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Now this great principle is based on on how you treat people. And it also hits on the great number one key to any church, and that is, unity. Everybody on the same page. And this great principle is based on how you treat people. There should be no preference. There should be no politics. You know, churches are filled with cliques. In reality, there should only be two cliques in any church. I don't really like the word clique, but everybody uses the term, so for association. You know, churches are filled with cliques. But a real Bible church, I'd only have two cliques in it. Click number one, that would be everybody who understands what's going on and has the pastor's heart and involved in ministry. And click number two, that would be everybody who's not. And the job of any pastor is to keep the second click to the lowest number you can. But that's the way it should work. But unfortunately, in most Baptist churches, it doesn't work that way. You know, the political hierarchy that goes on. How many times over the years I've seen the political games that go on with pastors and their people. You know... And most of you, the thing that I love about most of you is that when you came in and got saved in this church, and you've been in this church for any length of time, most of you do not understand the real Baptist world out there. You don't understand the politics, because there is no politics here. Everything here is on merit of what you do with the Bible. And, and, and many of you have been, have been saved from that, and, I, and that's a good thing. Many of you, you, you don't have to, you don't, you don't have to, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll say this because she's not here today. When, when, your, when your wife got saved New Year's Eve, when Barb worked with her, you know, this is the way you want them. How many times have we all worked with people and you try to win them to Christ and you open up the Bible and they say, well, what about baptism? Do I have to be baptized to be saved? 
What, what about tongues? Do I speak in tongues? But when the church I came from, they spoke in tongues. Or what about this? Or what about that? I got a thousand questions. This little gal, bless her heart, she came in and Barb started walking her through the principles. And Barb started to, Barb, she started to talk about, about, uh, about uh, discipleship. And the girl said, what's discipleship? Barb said, well, Barb said, well, when you get to a point, you need to pray and ask God. She says, I've never prayed to God in my life. How do you do that? She had never been to church in her life before she came that night. She had, and, 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 she, and, and Barb told her, she said, you know, I know you think that, that this is all a bad thing, but this is the best way to be. We don't have to undo anything to get you saved because you don't know anything other than the fact that you're a sinner. You don't have to work through nothing. That's the best way to find them. And the beauty about our church and a lot of you new people, you don't know what goes on out there. This church will never be part of a fellowship anytime, anyplace, anywhere. I've seen it over the years where the fellowship just becomes a political organization just like the Democrats and the Republicans. I've been associated with them all my life, not by choice, but because we always were. They always were connected with them. Every, every group of Baptist churches have some kind of fellowship. For our area up here, it's the BBF down in Springfield, Missouri. Other places, it's down in, uh, uh, out in the West Coast or down in Tennessee uh, or someplace around or in South Carolina. And what they are is they're a bunch of churches who get together and they form a little nucleus. And it really becomes a political organization. What they do is they take pastors out there and they make them the president of the fellowship. And then they have a vice president of the fellowship. And then they have in each state key guys who get designated as the pastor of that state that represents the fellowship. And it becomes the Democrats and the Republicans. Most of you don't know who Parker Daly was. Parker Daly was a great, or is a great preacher. He's not dead yet that I know of. And he run a church up here called Blue Ridge Baptist Temple. Uh, and he retired a, a number of years ago. And I remember uh, in the BBF that, uh, uh, that Parker was running for the presidents of, of BBF. And uh, he wanted to be the president of it. And you know, you do the same thing they do in the Democrats and the Republicans. You call your buddies up and you say, hey, I'm running for president. Oh, I think you'd be a great president. You got my vote. Yeah, we'll vote for you. And you get, you get voted in. And I remember watching that whole hypocrisy, and I remember this pastor talking to him and saying what a great president he would make. And, oh, yes, you have my support. And then he hung up the phone, and he trashed the guy, and he said, I guarantee you, he'll never be president. Now, how was God in that? I have such a disdain in my mind and my heart for that kind of Christianity that I can't even tell you, and if you push the wrong buttons, you'll get some words you never heard before connected with it. It drives me crazy. I've seen rich people get preference. I've seen politicians get precedence. I've seen guys that were like a federal judge get president. I've seen... People that were famous. I know a, an evangelist that I could tell you his name who's got a church now not too far from our place that was the big name in all the world of evangelism about 20 years ago. And everybody wanted to be like this guy. And every pastor, every pastor wanted to have him in his church. There were pastors that would woo him, take him out to eat, have him in to do great revivals in their church, all to try to get this guy in. And you know what he did? He took every steak dinner they bought. He took every gift they gave them and just moved on to the next guy who was going to flower him. You know what they all wanted? They all wanted this great evangelist to be in their church. You know why? 
because they wanted to go around the country and say, so-and-so is a member of our church. Oh, man, if he's a member of that church, oh, I want to be a member there. It's a game from beginning to end of trying to, everybody has to be on the same level. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your status is, how much money you have. It's absolutely, I remember years ago, I had a gal in my class. I taught the college and career class then. I had a guy, a gal in my class who called me on the phone and she said, uh, my father, my mother just died. And she says, uh, I, I want to I tithe off to the church what, what I got from her. And I said, okay. I said, uh, what can I do for you? She said, well, how do I do that? And I said, well, I said, uh, uh, just write a check and, and, and put it in the deal uh, uh, Sunday. And she said, well, she says, it's quite a large check. I said, well, it doesn't matter what it is. And she said, well, she says, I got quite a bit of money. And I said, okay, that's fine. She says, in fact, she says, I got $500,000. She says, okay to put a check in for $50,000? I said, yeah, if that's what you want to do, put it in. That's how you do it. Put it in. Make it out to the church, drop it in the offering. Well, we had a staff meeting next week. The pastor in a staff meeting, we're talking about everything going on, and he's always giving me a tough time anyhow. And he says, yes, and he says, we got to check in from one of your crazies, Bob. And I said, and I'm still in a blast. I said, really? What's that? He says, one, one of your crazies uh, put a check in for $50,000. What an idiot. And I said, was it so-and-so? And he says, yeah. He had a check. And I said, yeah. I said, she just inherited $500,000 of the death of her mother, and she wanted to tithe off of her. Boy, you should have saw his countenance change. Who is she? How old is she? Is she married? Can we get more money? Oh, call her. Have her come in this afternoon. Oh, you see, before he didn't want to know her. It's amazing what $50,000 will buy in most churches. All my life I've seen it. All my life I've seen it. That's why when I started this church, by the grace of God, I made you one promise, and I'll tell you what, as long as I'm pastor of it, There'll never be politics involved in this church. If you get to do anything, if you get to be anything, it's because you came up the ladder and you earned your way through that book by doing what God has called you to do, not how much money you've given. Kyle and I were talking this last week, and we were talking about a church that uh, uh, built, it, uh, and there's several of them around, and built this incredible facility. And... Uh, and we were talking about, uh, uh, I said, well, I'm sure it's beautiful. And, uh, you know, and Kyle said, yeah, man, they've got everything in it, done this, did that, it's all this, all that. And I, think, I thought to myself, wow. And I went home that night, and I, and, you know, I never, get, I, never get, I never get envious of those things. The other day I was driving, I don't know if you saw this or not, but if you're coming, coming east on uh, uh, 70, right past the stadium, if you look back here, there's a beautiful church for sale. Did you see it? You saw it, Joe? got a big for sale sign on it. And it's, it looks like it's got a gymnasium behind it, a good-sized church, and it's for sale, you know. And I was driving up there, and I looked over there, and just for an instant, just for an instant, I thought to myself, man, it would be nice to have that. I wonder what they want for it. And then in the next instant, I thought to myself, that's the stupidest thing in this world. You know what? I wouldn't trade what I have right here for anything in this world. You know there's pastors out there that are sweating bullets today because of the economy the way it is, and they got a building payment of $50,000 a month. 
$50,000 a month. I know one guy, his, his, his church payment is $20,000 a month. And he's sweating bullets right now because of the fact that, uh, that uh, you know, the economy and his offerings are down and how he is going to do that. This is the value in realizing that you never have your church building in better shape than your people. Hey, you know what? We could leave this place tomorrow, go back to where we were, go back to Steve's warehouse next door if we had to, we could, and not owe anybody a dime. But you see, here it is, folks. Learn this, young men. When you shackle yourself into that kind of program, then you've got to cut the shortcut, the principles to keep the money coming in. I hope you never think that because this church gets in a financial bind, not that we ever would, that if you have money, and I know you have money, and I like you if you have money, that I would ever shortcut my preaching so not to offend you, so you wouldn't leave, so your money stays. But it happens all the time. I've learned something over the You know what? Every church is paid for when the people who are in the church believe it's God's program. And it's just that simple. It's just that simple. If God always pays for what he orders and what God ordains, then he sustains. And it's just that simple. It's just that simple. And, of course, that's, that's, that's exactly where it's at. I mean, you know what? Uh, I've seen them make deacons out of the rich people uh, or give them special favors uh, and then come to the point where uh, all they wanted to do was get their influence. I've seen... Their kids get a free pass when they did something wrong, and the common ordinary people's kids get clobbered. You see, these are things that I learned that I want to teach you. These are things that you can't go to school and learn. You can't get these in a book. These are things that you have to go through by experience and the time that it takes to learn it and get it and put the whole thing together to understand what's real and what isn't. I remember one time, this has been years ago. Family in the church. Dad was a deacon. Big influential guy. Spiritual zero, but he was put to part of deacon because you, you gave spiritual favors out to get spiritual favors back. And you made somebody a deacon so you could, you could, if you found somebody that was a yes man that would tell you what you wanted to hear and go along with what you wanted to do, you made them a deacon because in those churches, the deacons had some kind of say in it. So you always put people in that were going to give you what you wanted. In return, you give them what they want, see? That's how it works, a two-way system. And I, 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 re- I remember this guy was a deacon. He didn't like me, and I don't, didn't like him. And we clashed several times. But his daughter went off to a Christian school. And uh, his daughter was a singer. She used to sing. And uh, she never got into the real ministry of my, my college and career class. She was always one of these worldly ones who, because of who her father was, she knew she could do whatever she wanted to do. Never came to Bible study, never did anything. Well, suddenly, one Sunday morning, I'm sitting in church after my Sunday school class, and she's singing the offering. And I'm thinking to myself, I thought she was in school. And I, I asked a couple of people, and they said, well, don't tell anybody, but she got kicked out of school because she was, got found smoking marijuana. Well, guess what I'm thinking? 
What in the world is she doing up singing before the office if she just got kicked out of school for running with the wrong crowd and doing marijuana? But I'm not one who gets my, my information from people. I go right to the source. So you know what I did that Monday? I called Liberty University. And I asked for the dean of students. And I identified myself as, as a, a pastor of this church. And I said, I need to talk to whoever's in charge of the women in your school. She gave me a nice lady. I said, nice lady? I said, my name is Bob Alexander, and I'm a pastor up here, uh, and I'm in charge of college and career. And I said, I just have a question. I said, because I'm a little concerned. I said, and I don't mean to cause a problem, or I'm not speaking out of turn, but I said, I got to know how to deal with my end up here. I said, is so-and-so was a member of your uh, school? And I said, now she's not a member of your school. And I said, here's my point. I said, I don't really care. But I said, this is what I heard. And she was singing a special on Sunday before they offer it. And I said, my deal is, is that I, I, I don't care what she did. I'm not mad about it. Uh, I'd do anything in the world to help her. But if that's true, she has no business standing in front of people singing before the offering. Okay? And the lady said, well, Pastor Alexander, she said, yes, that's exactly what happened. I said, well, thank you very much. I said, I, I really appreciate it. I said, I, I didn't want to say something or do something because, uh, you know, I didn't want to have my facts. Somebody had told me this. I never go on what somebody tells me. I always run it back to the source. Thank you very much. I'll deal with it from here. Now, in my naiveness, and this was a long time ago, in my, this is when my white horse was still alive. <laughs> Remember the white horse? Big old sucker. <laughs> and I ride that white horse into every problem. It would rear back, you know, and make and do this, you know, smoke come out his nose, you know, big clippity-clops on his feet, and I would ride in. When I go into a situation, it wouldn't just stop. It would do what real horses do. You'd ride in, and boy, and it'd turn around. It'd just keep turning around like this, and it'd rear back a while. And it'd get, you know, you could look around, and it'd just say, whoa, get away. You know, and you had to control him, because this horse wanted to solve problems. I shot that horse about 14 years ago. <laughs> and I found out a great lesson in ministry. Guys on white horses, no good deed will go unpunished. So, no, I was stupid back then. I hadn't learned to speak Baptist yet like I'm trying to teach you. I hadn't learned all the ins and outs like I want to teach you. And this was 20 years ago, if it was maybe more than that. Now, would not you think if I was the pastor and I knew had that information... And something like that was happening. Now, I wasn't going in and kick down the door and drag this girl off the stage by her hair and, and write D on the front of her forehead as dope and parade her around, you know. That's not was my goal. I thought we had a testimony that we wanted to. All the kids knew why she got kicked out of school. Don't you think that was just a little tough to have her get up there and she's singing before the Lord and this thing now now? But if you, if you, if you had her pee in a cup, she'd be in jail. Well, don't get mad at the word P. Larry asked the word the other night in Bible study that put us all in shock. Good job, Larry. I didn't use that word, but I, it was a good, that's a good question. Now you all want to know what it was. You see, that's what you miss when you don't come to Bible study. You don't get the Christian cuss words you can use and put in your language and get along with it just fine. So you know what I did? I did what I thought I should have done. Oh, boy. I went out to the backyard You know, put my saddle, my silver saddle, put that silver saddle on. Silver's the 
price of redemption. And put that thing on there, you know, tuck my sword down in there, picture the word of God, mounted that steed, said, fire, I'll be back in a little bit. I'm going to right wrongs. <laughs> Boy, I galloped off to the pastor's office. All the way down 55th Blue Ridge Cutoff, I could hear the clickety-clack of them silver cleats on them that, that hard surface. That horse was raring to go. He was up for action. And I, took, well, I tell you what, when I got in there, well, he was rearing back, and I had to calm him down and tie him off. And I went in there, and I said, Pastor, I said, I need to talk to you about something. He said, go ahead. I said, I just, I found this out. I said, and you need to know, I said, because I don't want it to be a problem. I said, but this gal told him who it was. I told him the whole story. He said, how'd you find that out? And I said, well, I heard a rumor up here, and I said, I didn't want to go with rumor. I wouldn't, didn't think you'd want me to go with rumor. So I confirmed it by calling down Liberty, and I said, I talked to Mrs. So-and-so down there, and she basically uh, uh, told me that that's exactly right. He says, okay, I'll take care of it. I got a phone call two days later. You know what he did? He called down to Liberty Baptist College and got this woman fired. Yes, your mouth is open. Make a caveman homesick. That's what he did. That's what he did. He got her fired. She called me back crying. Now, how do you think I felt? How do you think the horse felt? I got this woman fired. And all I wanted to do was to do what was right. Because I thought that pastors did what was right. But because of who her father was, and because of the fact that he was a deacon, because of the fact that, that he was very influential and gave a lot of money and had a lot of input and had things going for the pastor that he was getting done that the pastor was using him to do. This poor woman lost her job, and I felt terrible for it. But I learned a great lesson that day. And I've never forgotten that lesson. And that's why when I built this church, we put this church to God and gave it to him, I've made a vow before God, and as long as I'm pastor, there will never be any politics in this church Good, rich, poor, in, out, whatever the case may be, everybody has to go by the same principles and the same standards no matter who you are. That was a tough lesson. Those are the kind of things, ladies and gentlemen, on whatever level you are, you need to learn. There's more than ministry in getting up and opening your Bible and praying and saying, okay, here's what the Bible says. You have to learn if this church is going to go where it goes and you're going to be, the, you're going to be the, the cement that holds it together when I can't do it anymore. You've got to learn. You've got to learn what I've had to learn. You've got to understand to speak the Christian language. You've got to understand to don't just see but to observe. You've got to understand that things are not always the way they appear. And you've got to realize that it's the character qualities that we need to build, every one of us, from me down. In ministry, it's all about examples. You lead from the top down. And in that chain of command, there's an accountability factor that has to be built in. And these are the things that we're going to learn. These are the things that for those of you who want to go through it and want to be part of the working Bible ministry of the church. And I don't care if you, I don't care. You can be here for six years. You could have come in just last week. I will take you wherever you're at and I will help you get to wherever you want to go. Because that's what's going to make this church this next level. 
the honesty and the openty of the Word of God, the transparency of it all, that we do this thing by the book and that there's nothing out there that somebody gets because of the fact that they're the pastor's friend or they give more money here or they do this or, or they do that. And it just comes down to the fact that, ladies and gentlemen, that, that uh, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. You know, there's no reason to build a church wrong. And this is why the thing that we're going to talk about as we come down through this, um, every time we get together, and see, I'm going to do basically two things this year. Uh, we won't maybe get it all done. I'm, I'm not planning to, but just so you understand where I'm coming from. We're in Romans. By design, I started Romans when I did because I knew probably that we were going to get to this point and have our New Year's Eve a year and a half ago. So I started Romans to get the base text down. This is why we're spending the enormous time in the book of Romans unearthing every stone to learn everything we can. And like everything we do, some of you are doing it, some of you are not doing it. It's just the way it is. Now, two things. Once we're finished with Romans, we're going to start the book of 2 Corinthians because the book of 2 Corinthians is the handbook on ministry. And I will break it down and explain to you everything you wanted to know about every aspect of ministry is found in the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, now it might be a little while before we get there because I know we only got a couple chapters left, but uh, I want to make sure we get it. But then in this is, an institute. We're getting to the point where now uh, we're going to be done probably this year with uh, our institute on this phase of it. And now we also know that the next phase uh, of institute, which is perfect timing for where we're at, we're going to finish Romans. We just started a new year. We've talked about the accountability. We've talked about iron sharpening iron. We've talked about all the principles we want to put in place. We're taking everybody on whatever level you're at and getting you to the next level where you want to go, all the way up with a mindset to build the elders, to get this church functioning on that level uh, and everything that goes along with that. And then the next thing we're going to do when we get an institute, we're going to go through biblical counseling. And we're going to come through every problem, concept of what you're going to deal with how you deal with it, see every issue in the Bible of how you deal with issues in people's life and in every problem you're going to deal with. And we'll get this thing on its way. It, it already is. I, I just can't tell you how. I, and I've and I got to say this, and I know I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. I better be done right now. I'm done. Let me say this. <clears throat> this will mean nothing to most of you. It means everything to me. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, I had a situation happen in the church of a problem in a family, and uh, I could not get there. Uh, I've had several times when this has happened, and I want to say, and this is what I'm talking about. This is what I mean when I'm talking about men and women who have my heart for ministry, who are right there and understand what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. Two of you guys stepped in, and two of you guys did exactly what I would have done if I could have been there. It was not that big a deal. It was not somebody jumping off a cliff someplace or, or, or killed somebody. It was, it was something that it wasn't about what you dealt with. It was the fact that some of you see what I see and are there in touch with what I'm in touch with. And when I can't, you, I can't always be there. I try to be, but there's going to be times when things don't allow it to happen. And that's when you guys step up to the plate. I never ask you. I never, God, because of where you're at, picked you up and put you in it. And I'm telling you, that means more to me 
than anything else that I could say to you that tells me this is where we want to go. This is where we want to go. And I know there's a number of you out there. I'm not just shaking out these two guys, but there's a number of you out there, men and women, who, who are in touch with the reality. But I'm saying, this is with the principles that we're talking about. It wasn't the fact that you did what you did. It wasn't the fact that you met the need. It was the fact that you took the principles that I'm talking about and applied them to your life and then let God use you where you needed to be used. That's what it takes. Every head bowed and every eye closed.